I'm Philippa Webb, Professor of Public International Law at King's College London, and this is Lecture 2 in the series on Diplomatic and Consular Relations. The topic of this lecture is the immunities and privileges of diplomats and consular officers, and I will also briefly consider diplomatic asylum. So first I will start with the immunity of diplomatic and consular officers. The inviolability of the mission, its premises, its archives, property and communications was already addressed in Lecture 1. Second, I will consider special missions immunity. And third, some comments on diplomatic asylum. Diplomats enjoy broad immunities from the jurisdiction of the receiving state. And that is provided for in Article 31 of the Vienna Convention on Diplomatic Relations. But at the same time, Article 41 provides that they have to respect the laws and regulations of the receiving state. In terms of criminal jurisdiction, diplomatic agents are absolutely immune from the criminal jurisdiction of the receiving state. They cannot be submitted to, in the words of the ICJ, any form of criminal trial or investigation. The diplomat is immune from arrest, detention, and search. But as the International Law Commission has recognized, this principle does not exclude either self-defense or, in exceptional circumstances, measures to prevent the diplomat from committing crimes or offenses. Civil jurisdiction immunity is not absolute. There are three fairly narrow exceptions under Article 31. The first is a real action relating to private, immovable property situated on the territory of the receiving state. This is unless the diplomat is holding this property on behalf of the sending state for the purposes of the mission. The second category is an action relating to succession, in which the diplomatic agent is involved as a private person and not on behalf of the sending state. These two exceptions to diplomatic immunity are invoked very rarely. It is the third exception where we've seen some more litigation. This is an exception to immunity for an action relating to a professional or commercial activity exercised in the receiving state outside of the diplomat's functions. This exception doesn't cover day-to-day -day commercial dealings such as the purchase of goods but rather relates to an activity on an ongoing basis. And an important judgment of the United Kingdom Supreme Court in 2017 interpreted this provision. The case is called Reyes and Almalki. And in this case, a domestic worker from the Philippines sued her employer, who was a Saudi diplomat in London. She alleged breach of various employment laws including discrimination, excessive working hours, low pay, and other violations. She claims that she had entered the United Kingdom showing that she would have a contract that would pay her £500 a month. But in reality, she was paid hardly anything and made to work excessive hours, had her passport confiscated, did not have proper accommodation, and was prevented from leaving the house or communicating with others. The United Kingdom Visas and Immigration Service found reasonable grounds that she had been a victim of human trafficking. By the time the case reached the UK Supreme Court, 
the diplomat in question had already left his post and returned to Saudi Arabia. So the provision that was being interpreted by the court was Article 39, Paragraph 2 of the Vienna Convention on Diplomatic Relations, which provides immunity for a former diplomat for acts in the exercise of his functions as a member of the mission. All five judges found that the treatment of Miss Reyes was not an act within the functions of the diplomat, and therefore, under this residual immunity, he had no immunity for such claims. But the five justices also commented in obiter dictum on whether the diplomat would have had immunity if he had still been in post here in London. And here there was a split in the court. There's a test in two parts for whether he would enjoy immunity. First, it would have to be an act outside of his official functions, and second, an act that was a professional or commercial activity. On the question of whether the trafficking and employment of Ms. Reyes was outside of his functions, all five justices agreed. The domestic duties of Ms. Reyes were not considered to be done on behalf of Saudi Arabia, and even if they were conducive to the diplomat's functions, they were not part of his functions. But there was a division on views on whether this was a commercial activity. Two of the justices held that the employment and treatment of Miss Reyes was not the same as carrying on or participating in a professional or commercial activity. So they would have found that he was still immune. But three of the justices disagreed. And they said that trafficking is a whole sequence of actions that leads to the exploitation of the victim. And it would be a rational view to characterize it as a commercial activity. So they said in Obita that if he had still been in post, they would have found that he was not immune. In addition to Article 31 of the Vienna Convention, Article 42 provides that a diplomatic agent shall not, in the receiving state, practice for personal profit any professional or commercial activity. The diplomatic agent is immune from execution except in cases coming under the exceptions to immunity from civil jurisdiction, as long as that execution does not infringe on the inviolability of his person or residence. This means in practice that even if there is a case found against a diplomat, it may be quite hard to execute and enforce against his assets. The timing of immunity in terms of when it starts and ends may be an important factor. The Vienna Convention provides that the immunity of the diplomat starts from the moment that he enters the territory of the receiving state to take up his post. If he is already within the territory of the state, then the effective immunity starts from the moment of notification of his appointment. And the immunity ends after his functions end and he leaves the country, or after a reasonable period in which he, to, he is given in order to which leave the country under Article 39 of the Vienna Convention. And I discussed in Lecture 4 how different states provide different amounts of time, ranging from a couple of days to up to six months. But as I also mentioned, 
When the functions of a diplomat end, that doesn't mean he no longer enjoys any immunity. He still has immunity for acts performed in the exercise of his functions as a member of the mission, and this immunity has no time limit. Articles 33 to 36 of the Vienna Convention also provide for certain privileges that diplomats enjoy in the receiving state. These include being exempt from social security regulations, from dues and taxes, from import restrictions, customs duties, and taxes on articles for personal use. They are also exempt from baggage inspection unless there are serious grounds for presuming that the bag contains articles that are not for personal use or articles that are prohibited by the law or controlled by quarantine regulations. Often a diplomat comes for a number of years to his or her posting and may bring family members along with him. And privileges and immunities do extend to these family members forming part of the diplomat's household providing that they are not nationals of the receiving state. States generally agree that the immunity enjoyed by family members applies to the spouse of the diplomat and children under 18. But other states vary in their approach to defining who is a member of the family household. In the United Kingdom, for example, it covers spouses, uh, children under 18, children over 18 who are still in full-time education, dependent relatives who form part of the household abroad, such as an elderly widowed parent, other close relatives who have no one else to look after them, such as orphaned brothers and sisters. The UK also extends this protection to unmarried partners, where the relationship is recognised as durable by the sending state and akin to marriage and that the partners live together in the United Kingdom for the duration of the posting. And of course, when we look at the diplomatic mission, it is not only diplomats who are working there. There are a wide range of administrative and technical staff, service staff and private servants in residences who help run the mission and the diplomats household. And these people enjoy a varied range of immunities. The administrative and technical staff may include secretaries, archivists, translators, interpreters and accountants. And the service staff may involve porters, drivers, gardeners, cooks and cleaners. For those who are not nationals or permanently resident in the receiving state, they have no immunity for acts performed outside the course of their duties. Roseanne van Allebeek suggests that the notion of acts performed in the course of duties is quite broad. It extends not only to acts that are committed on behalf of the sending state, but also to all acts that are incidental to employment within the mission. Private servants are not employed by the mission but instead by a member of the mission in domestic service. And if they are not nationals or permanent residents, they are exempt from dues and taxes on their emoluments, but don't otherwise enjoy other forms of immunity. And there is a specific provision under Article 38 that the receiving state must ensure not to interfere unduly with the performance of the functions of the mission 
when it exercises jurisdiction over private servants. Now, as I've been mentioning the scope of immunities, I've often been referring to this exception for nationals or permanent residents of the receiving state. And that is because their immunities are much more restricted because of their territorial and citizenship connection to the receiving state. For diplomats who are nationals or permanent residents in the receiving state, they only have immunity for official acts performed in the exercise of their functions. The problem or the challenge is that the Vienna Convention doesn't provide any guidance on what constitutes a permanent resident. And states have varying approaches as to how to define a permanent resident and at what point in time that definition needs to be applied. France and Switzerland determine the status by reference to the date when the employment commences. Australia, Canada and the UK, on the other hand, take into account developments after the date of employment. There's been an interesting application of this in a recent United Kingdom case called Al Jufali. Until that case, the main source for defining whether someone is a permanent resident in the UK was a policy paper developed in 1969. And it said there were several factors to be taken into account in determining permanent residency. The intention of the individual to stay or return to their home country, links with the state that they called home, the prospect of the individual being posted elsewhere, whether they were locally recruited, and then, only for women, and reflecting the gender expectations of the time, whether the woman was married to a permanent resident of the United Kingdom. When the United Kingdom court applied this policy in 2018 in an actual case, it updated some of these factors. In that case, the question was whether a Saudi national was a permanent resident of the United Kingdom. This person had been domiciled in Saudi Arabia. It was the only state in which he had indefinite right to remain. He had never been resident in the United Kingdom for tax purposes. He had no assets in the UK giving rise to taxable income. And in a typical year, he only spent 110 nights in the United Kingdom. So all of these factors seem to point away from him having a permanent resident status in the United Kingdom. However, the English Court of Appeal found it significant that he had been married three times and each marriage had produced children and family homes based in the United Kingdom, that all his children were being educated in the United Kingdom and spoke English. And in an adaptation of the gender expectations in the 1969 policy, the Court of Appeal found that where a man chooses to live with his wife and children says a great deal about where he intends his home to be. And on this basis, they found that he was a permanent resident and only entitled to immunity for official acts. The second type of immunity I'd like to discuss is special missions immunity. And this is a form of immunity that is very similar to diplomatic immunity in its scope, 
but much shorter in its duration. A special mission is a temporary mission representing a state which is sent by one state to another with the consent of the receiving state. And it is with the purpose of carrying out official engagements on behalf of the sending state. So Michael Wood and Andrew Sanger have explained that the immunities of the members of special missions are not governed by any widely ratified convention. The Convention on Special Missions has only 38 states parties, even though it's been uh, adopted for over 50 years. So in many respects, it is customary international law that we need to look to. And in their view, and in which um, a court here in the UK agreed in the Freedom and Justice Party case, the rules of customary international law provide for the inviolability of the person and immunity from criminal jurisdiction. To quote the Court of Appeal, special missions have performed the role of ad hoc diplomats across the world for generations. They are an essential part of the conduct of international relations. There can be few who have not heard, for instance, of special envoys or shuttle diplomacy. Special missions cannot be expected to perform their role without the functional protection afforded by the core immunities. No state has taken action or adopted a practice inconsistent with the recognition of such immunities. No state has asserted that they do not exist. We do not therefore doubt that an international court would find that there is a rule of customary international law to that effect. But beyond this core immunity, of immunity from criminal jurisdiction, there are uncertainties about the scope of special mission immunity, including the precise scope of the missions in which the immunity arises, with some states recognizing immunity for all missions and some just for officials at a certain level or performing a specific function. There's also a question of whether and if, how far customary international law requires states to grant immunity from civil jurisdiction in the context of a special mission. I now turn to the last topic in this lecture of diplomatic asylum. And this is the offering of protection to a person present in the premises of the mission. Except for essential humanitarian reasons, there is no general right in international law to grant diplomatic asylum. So the existence of such a so-called right needs to be proved by either treaty or custom. Under general international law, diplomatic asylum is based on humanitarian protection, where the sending state may have a right to protect an individual who is in immediate danger to their life or safety. However, this person does not have a right as such to be granted diplomatic asylum. They would not be classified as a refugee under the 1951 convention or its 1967 protocol. A state may only grant diplomatic asylum for the purposes of saving a life or preventing injury in the face of an immediate threat. It may only be granted on a temporary basis and until local authorities lawfully demand the person's surrender. In general, European countries and the United States do not accept a general right to diplomatic asylum except for essential humanitarian reasons. 
they have in the past granted short-term diplomatic asylum to political refugees, for example. However, the practice has been more common among certain Latin American states. The International Court of Justice has considered diplomatic asylum in two cases relating to the same dispute between Colombia and Peru. After a military rebellion broke out in Peru in the late 1940s, Peru opened judicial proceedings for the crime of military rebellion against Mr. Haya de la Torre, who was a leader of a political party allegedly responsible for the rebellion. Mr. Haya de la Torre was sought and was granted diplomatic asylum in the Colombian embassy in Lima. Colombia claimed to be acting in accordance with the Pan-American Havana Convention on Asylum. Colombia claimed that, it was, that he was a political refugee, but on the other hand, Peru argued that Colombia was not able to unilaterally qualify Mr. Haya de la Torre as a political refugee, given that he had been accused of a common crime. As a secondary argument, Colombia relied on a regional custom claiming that the right to diplomatic asylum was a rule of customary international law in Latin America. Ultimately, the International Court of Justice rejected Colombia's arguments. It first found that Colombia did not have unilateral competence to qualify the offence with a definite and binding force on Peru. And the court also rejected the submission based on a so-called regional custom. It said that it is not possible to discern in all of this any constant and uniform usage accepted as law with regard to the alleged rule of unilateral and definitive qualification of the offence. And the court further said, even if this custom existed between certain Latin American states, it could not be invoked against Peru, which had clearly not accepted the rule. In a later case related to the same facts, the court held that while there was no duty on the part of a diplomat not to intervene in the affairs of the receiving state, there was also not a duty to assist in the course of justice in that state. And it found that diplomatic protection, as contemplated in the Havana Convention, was a provisional measure extended on humanitarian grounds for the protection of the accused and should terminate as soon as possible, even though surrendering the individual was the only conceivable method of terminating the asylum. As is well known, for seven years, Julian Assange of WikiLeaks took refuge in a small office that was converted into a bedroom in Ecuador's embassy here in London. Ecuador claiming this right of diplomatic asylum. In April 2019, Ecuador formally withdrew asylum and Julian Assange was arrested by British police. So in conclusion, for a long time, the law on diplomatic immunity has been remarkably stable. The Vienna Convention on Diplomatic Relations has provided a solid foundation for the law of diplomatic immunity. It is underpinned by what Denza calls the effectiveness of re reciprocity as a sanction against non-compliance. There are, however, some emerging questions about the extent of the commercial activity exception to diplomatic immunity, the question of who is a family member who would enjoy immunity, 
who is a permanent resident with limitations on their immunity, and also certain aspects of special missions immunity.